before we get started, I need to make a correction from last week's sermon, and I wanted to do that right up front rather than waiting until we got to the place where today I was corrected last week. That makes no sense. I just realized that coming out. Here's what happened. Last week, we, we were talking about the fact that, uh, that God gave Moses signs to take to the Israelites to stimulate or give them ground or cause for their faith. And we pointed out that one of the interesting things in those three signs, so the, the staff or the rod turning to a snake, the hand going into the, uh, into the robe and coming out uh, diseased, and then uh, the, the water turned to blood, that those signs were presented to Pharaoh. Right? What I said uh, when I was making that point was that those signs were not presented to the Israelites, but were presented to Pharaoh. That is not accurate. What I should have said was, we do not read or we are not told, given the scene of Moses presenting these signs to the Israelites as we are with Pharaoh. In this passage today, it says very clearly that Moses presented the signs or that he performed the signs that God had given him. It's just simply stated in a very matter-of-fact, succinct way. We get none of the drama that goes on when he does those signs for Pharaoh. And we were trying to simply make the point that signs are good if they can draw someone to faith, but in and of themselves, signs also have a contradictory work in which they can, on, for one man, draw him to faith, but for another man can harden him in his lack of faith. All right, so I wanted to, wanted to correct that. If anything is ever said up here, whether in our prayers or in our preaching, our teaching, that isn't in line with the Word, whether it's misspoken or inadvertent or not, I want to get that corrected as quickly as possible because if we're not going to rest on the Word, everything else is just wasted time, okay? All right, having said that, I appreciate your patience. I also appreciate my gracious wife. I'll give you a little scene in the Merritt household. The reason that I realized that I had misspoken was because later that day when I got home, my wife is sitting on the couch with her Bible open, and I came walking in, and you know, I'm expecting to hear a glowing report as to what happened. No, I'm just kidding. So I, I walk in, and she says something very, very calm and, and benign, very soothing, like, I, could you explain something to me? And then... You blew it. No, I just, okay. So anyway, I'm grateful for a wife who actually listens to her husband preach. <laughs> Exodus chapter 4, pick up with me at verse 18. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. And let me say before I start reading one other thing, there is in this passage of Scripture that we're reading today one of the strangest stories in all of the Old Testament. I'll, I'll point that out to you when we get to it. We are not going to take the time to delve into it today because we, we just simply are with communion. We want to make sure that we get important things in. If the oddity of this little scene that we're about to read here in, in just a, a few moments sort of piques your curiosity, that's what we'll touch on or what we'll address in the evening service tonight. I'll have a little bit more time where I can say, what in the world do you do with a bizarre 
passage of Scripture like this. I'll, I'll point it out to you as if you'll need me to point it out to you when we get to it. Exodus 4:18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go that I may return to my brothers who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife. Here's the odd passage. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. I'm sorry, this is not the odd passage. I'll let you hear it when we get there. Verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Here's the odd passage. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verse 27. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, uh, with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us now, we ask, in a passage that is densely packed with enduring truths, truths that give us hope and encouragement in difficult times, help us to be able to see a little bit more of your glory and your grace. Help us to see your glory and grace revealed in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and give us that ability by the present power of your Holy Spirit who works in us for our good. We thank you for this time that we have, and it's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen. So if we're going to work off of a big idea for Exodus 4, 18 through 31, it would be something like this. God's word of salvation is judgment for the enemy and comfort for his people. God's word of salvation is judgment for the enemy and comfort for his people. Now let me say up front... Just so you know where we're going to go, we're going to take essentially two paragraphs out of verses 18 through 31 and make that the focal point of the, of the message today because there is so much packed into 
an early statement and a latter statement that if we tried to cover everything, we would pass over so quickly all of the verses that it pro you probably would leave here without anything good, meaty, and weighty to hang on to. So we're going to be keying in especially on verses 21 through 23 and verses 29 through 31. So looking at those two paragraphs as key statements or essential paragraphs in this passage of Scripture as Moses is preparing to return and in fact does finally return to Egypt to bring the Israelites out to begin the work of deliverance. We want to take note of two things. One, in verses 21, and 20, 21 through 23, that God's word through Moses to Pharaoh is a word of judgment. And second, in verses 29 through 31, that God's word through his servant Moses to the Israelites is a word of comfort. Or if you're old school and you like alliteration, you could say condemnation and comfort, right? The two C's. Any English teachers in here? Okay, tough crowd. Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Notice what the Lord says that Moses is to say to Pharaoh. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Let me start with what is a very perplexing statement when God tells Moses to go back and to perform the signs that he has given him to do in the presence of Pharaoh. In verse 21, God tells Moses, perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We will come back and revisit this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart probably when we get to chapter 7. We're not going to try to explain sort of the depths and nuances that go into a statement like this, but let me just point out what looks like to be an inconsistency in what God is doing. God gives Moses signs that he will take to the Israelites and signs that he will use in front of Pharaoh, and the signs are meant to confirm or validate the message that Moses brings. In other words, as we said last week, the signs are to draw someone to faith, to belief in the announcement that's being made about who God is and what He's going to do for His people. So, Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you show him these signs, presumably, so that he will know that I am speaking through you, so that he will know that he is to let the people go, you perform all these signs that prove that what you're saying is true, but 
even though you do all of the signs that I give you, the staff to a snake, water to blood, all the way through the plagues, even though you do all that I give you to do, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Anyone find that just a little bit strange? Moses, you go do this, but you're going to be talking to a brick wall. You go perform all of these signs, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You get the impression that something like this is going on when you read it or think about it that way, that God's good work is being done through Moses, but there is no work or no fruit to be shown on Pharaoh's side, right? All the genuine divine work God is doing through His servant Moses, but there's nothing going on with Pharaoh. He's deaf ears, blind eyes, hardened heart. What if, though, instead of reading this statement as, you go perform all of these signs to Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart, what if it was not but, but and? You go to Pharaoh and perform all of these signs, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. One conjunction, a but to an and, can make a huge difference in the way that we think about this statement. Because if, and by the way, you can, and I would argue, I think you probably should translate the conjunction there as an and, not a but. If you read the statement as, you perform the signs, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that means that God's work is being accomplished simultaneously through Moses, his servant, and he is accomplishing his work through Pharaoh, the opposition or the enemy. That is a massive statement. That is a massive word of encouragement to God's people to say that my power and my rule and my authority is such that both for those who are called according to my purpose and for those who would even be in opposition to my purpose, ultimately at the end of the day, they all do my purpose. Why, why would he do that? If the end goal is to get Israel out of Egypt, why harden Pharaoh's heart? Why not let Pharaoh believe the signs that he's going to see, just like the Israelites are going to believe the signs, so that they don't have to go through sign number one, sign number two, sign number, all the way to the death of the firstborn? Wouldn't it have been much easier for everyone concerned if when Moses comes and does the signs, Pharaoh says, oh my goodness, there is this God named Yahweh. Yes, by all means, let the people go. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Skip over just a couple pages 
to Exodus chapter 7. Here's another statement that God gives, saying that He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Listen to what God says here in Exodus 7.3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that, in order that, here's a purpose or a result statement, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So you go back to chapter 4. You perform all of the signs, and I am going to harden his heart. When you pair that up with chapter 7, verse 3, the implication seems to be the reason that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, we should say at least in part, maybe there are more reasons that we'll find later, but at least in part, is because I don't want my signs to be over after the first or the second one. I want to do ten signs. Why would God want to do ten signs, not two? Because I intend to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And he will say later, as they see my signs and wonders, they will know that I am God. In other words, God wants this protracted animosity, this hostility between Moses and Pharaoh, so that the more hardened Pharaoh becomes, the more entrenched he becomes in his position, in his unbelief, God shows in increasingly greater ways the depth of his power and control over Pharaoh, over the Egyptians, over the land. And he shows increasingly, progressively, that this is not an average God. In fact, one of the things that will make God look great is that he will defeat an enemy that no other God would be able to defeat. It says something about God if even when his enemies opposing him ultimately further his purposes, that puts God on another level. Whether you are with me or against me, at the end of the day, you're all doing my will. Christian, you better hold on to this tight. What are you going to do in a hostile world, in a society, in a culture that despises your king, who does not want to listen to words of grace in the pages of the Scriptures, who despise, who look down on your faith and your belief, who consider you and the hypothetical God that you worship, who consider you and that God to be weak and foolish. Maybe a better question is, what will you do when those people who despise you actually come to try to harm you and destroy you?
your job, your reputation, your family. If God does not instantly deliver you from that kind of opposition or attack, what conclusion are you going to draw? Are you going to say, well, if God were in control, this will be over with in 24 hours? And if it goes to 48 hours or 72, or if it goes on for a year or 10, then what do you conclude? That God must not be able to do what He said He was going to do? Or do you say, no, we are servants of the Lord. We will speak what God has given us to speak. We will show what God has given us to show. And, and, when hardened hearts and stiff opposition comes, we will continue to praise and glorify a sovereign God who rules over His people and His enemies. We tend to think that if God's work is going to be accomplished, it has to be accomplished one way, right? I want to be sanctified. I want to become more holy. God, if you hadn't given me this husband or this wife, I would be much further along in my sanctification. No. That husband or that wife is your sanctification. If I didn't have to put up with frustrations at home or in the workplace, if I did not face opposition, if the path were smoother, I would be able to more clearly see your hand at work. I would be more confident that you are doing the good work that you promised to do. No. Even the opposition is part of His work. The more opposition that God's people face, the more hostility that they encounter, the greater the opportunity for God to display His preserving power, for God to display His faithfulness to His Word, and ultimately one day for God to display His cosmic power in delivering us from an entire world order that is set against us. All of this opposition that we face right now is leading up to, is building up to that moment when Christ returns and when He nullifies everything that has meant to destroy us. The greater the opposition, the louder the praise when God finally conquers it on that last final great day. You don't want your praise to be diminished by a short-changed ending. You want God's purpose and plan to run its course so that you can sing with gusto at the end of the day and say, how great is our God. We have to do it. Hold your place here. Go to John chapter 12. 
just so you can see that this is not merely an Old Testament doctrine or an Old Testament quirk. John chapter 12, start with me at verse 37. Tell me if you don't hear similarities in God's servant Moses and the signs that he brings with God's servant Jesus and the signs that he performs. John chapter 12, verse 37, but though he, referring to Christ, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, quote, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John goes on, for this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, quote, He, the Lord, has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Moses comes bringing signs to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rejects everything that he sees and hears, and all of that is by design, so that God can put himself on display and make his power and his rule effective and glorious. Jesus arrives as the eternal Son the God-man, he performs signs and his enemies reject the signs that he performs. They turn a deaf ear to what he has to say and all of that, John says, was part of God's plan so that God would look great when he conquers his enemies in the rejection and death of his son, Jesus Christ. If the worst act of rebellion against God led to the greatest victory of God on the cross, every Christian needs to know and needs to be convinced that everything else is small compared to that. Any other opposition, any other hostility that comes my way is all working according to His plan, which is for my good. And it will result, it will end in His glory and my joy. No one is going to stop that. Another thing that we need to notice about the way that God works in and through Pharaoh, even by way of judgment, is that along with the hardening of the heart, the performing of the signs, the word that God gives to deliver to Pharaoh, Moses is supposed to go and say something to Pharaoh about Israel. 
So if you're back in Exodus chapter 4, goodness, I don't even know if we're going to get out of this first paragraph. If you go back to Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let him go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God says to Pharaoh that how I treat you is to be measured or determined by how you treat my son. We need to say something then about the significance of God calling Israel, calling a group of people his son, his firstborn son. Right? Just, just to say that Israel is my son, already you recognize that God is saying there is a particular affectionate attachment, a relational connection between me and these people down here. Something unique that I have and share with them that does not exist with others. Right? That's, that's part of what makes a family a family. You're able to distinguish one from the other. But what does it mean to say that Israel is my firstborn son? This is sort of cultural displacement, because this is not typically the way that we think. Right? We hear the term firstborn, and we think in terms of sequence. So if you have three kids, if you have six, if you have a dozen, your firstborn just happens to be the one that was born first. Simple. It does have that meaning and that significance in certain places in the Old Testament. Firstborn does mean that, the one who, who was born first. And that is a cause for rejoicing because the firstborn was said to be the one that, quote-unquote, opens the womb. You're excited for the firstborn because you're expecting that after the firstborn there will be a second and a thirdborn, right? So the firstborn is cause to rejoice. More significant, perhaps, especially for us in this passage is when firstborn is used not in terms of sequence or in terms of time, but as a statement of priority or preeminence, or more simply put, as a statement about position. So, when God says, Israel is my firstborn, He doesn't mean that Israel is the first nation that I ever assembled or put together. We know that that's not the case. Rather, it means that because Israel has a special relationship with me, of all the other nations and peoples of the earth, they have a special place and position above all others, and because of that special, unique place and position, I treat them differently than I treat everyone else. There is a unique way in which I love them that is not shared by everyone else because they are my firstborn, because they belong to me. So the firstborn has a special place and position. The firstborn, notice also here, 
is assumed to be about the work of the Father, right? If God is the Father to Israel, if Israel is my firstborn, what is the firstborn supposed to do according to the Lord? Well, you're supposed to let my firstborn go so that he may serve me. So long as Pharaoh is abusing God's son, he's abusing the heart of God. So long as Pharaoh and the Egyptians are hostile to the firstborn, they are hostile to the father. To the extent that the Egyptians do not allow the firstborn to go out to serve and to worship their father, the Egyptians then are preventing the worship and the service of God. That's why, in part, the Lord will say, you treat my firstborn this way, your firstborn will suffer the consequences. You either give me my firstborn to fulfill my purposes according to my desire, or I will take your firstborn. Judgment depends on how Pharaoh responds to God's firstborn. Anyone already hear New Testament echoes? Yes? No? All right, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did he, that is God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And then notice verse 6. And when he again brings thee firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Who, in Hebrews 1.6, is the firstborn that God brings into the world? Jesus Christ. The firstborn Jesus Christ is the one who has a unique, special relationship with the Father, who is sent to do the will and the work of His Father, who is in a place of pride and preeminence over any other person. And if you reject the Son, the firstborn, Jesus Christ, if you reject Him, you are rejecting God. If you like the idea of God, but you're not sure about this guy, Jesus, you can't have it both ways. Jesus will say over and over again in the Gospel of John that there is no middle ground, that your judgment 
or your life depends on what you do with me. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand very clearly that judgment or reward, life and death, is determined by how you approach God's firstborn Son, the man, Jesus Christ who is also God in the flesh. And if you will not submit to Him, you will not submit to God. But let's go one step further with the firstborn imagery. In Hebrews, turn a little further, go to Hebrews chapter 12. And pick up with me at verse 22. Verses 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You hear the firstborn language there? All right, now listen, I never recognized this until this week. Every time that I had read that verse in 1223, I had assumed that when it said, you have come to the church of the firstborn, that the firstborn was in reference to Christ. In other words, you have come to the church that belongs to Christ. That's not what the firstborn is referring to there. The firstborn there is not singular. You can't see it in English. It's plural. You have come to the church or to the assembly of the firstborns. Who are the firstborns? In Christ, we are. Listen to how this works through redemptive history. God, in the model or in the shadow of Old Testament Israel, says, I redeem a people that I intend to take and identify as my people, as my son. I have a special affection and place of preeminence for them. They are the ones who will come and serve me and worship me and do my will. They will be blessed. They will be rewarded. Israel never lives up to the call of being a true firstborn son that pleases and delights her father. Jesus does that. Jesus is the true and better firstborn who comes into the world and says, my food, what fills me, what sustains me, is to do the will of him who sent me, who says... Even though I do not want to go to the cross, my flesh recoils at that idea. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he satisfies and he delights his Father. But then listen, listen, listen. Because the true eternal firstborn 
pleases his Father in every way, even to the point of death, death on a cross. The offer is made to rebels like us to say, if you come to this firstborn, if you listen to his voice, if you come and accept what he is offering to give you, I will count you as one of my firstborns. You will have a place of prominence. You will be a place of special affection and delight in your own person and as you to get, gather together as a people. And in the same way that we know that God would ultimately never abandon His firstborn son to the grave, we can also say that we, as little firstborns in Jesus Christ, we are never going to be abandoned to the grave. We will be raised. We will see victory over our enemies. And to respond in repentant faith to the true firstborn, to Jesus Christ, is to be made a son and a daughter as an act of grace. And all of the assurances, all of the privileges that come with sonship are given to you in full and for free. Edgewood is my firstborn. And I am watching over them. They will be set free to worship and serve me in my presence. Let's pause here and transition to celebrate at the table. Keep your Bible open to, a, to Exodus chapter 4. Move with me to the end of the chapter in verses 30 and 31. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. They believed that Moses and Aaron had been sent to bring them out to deliver them when they saw the signs. But notice, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. What comforts the people of God in their affliction, even as they remain in their time of misery and suffering in Egypt? The word of the Lord. The word of God comes, and the Lord says, You are my people, and I have seen... What has happened to you? I am with you now, and because I care about what is happening to you, I am telling you now that you will be delivered. Notice, 
Pharaoh and the Egyptians, until judgment begins to come, they're enjoying their comfort at that present time. God's people are not enjoying their comfort and reward. They have the promise of comfort and reward. And whether or not they will be comforted all depends on whether or not they will receive and believe what the Lord has said. In part, this is exactly what we do when we come to the Lord's table. Both in sign and in word, God is declaring His word to His people that because of the brokenness and the rebellion of this world, because of the misery that we encounter, there is coming a time when everyone that He has purchased to be His son and His daughter, He will return to gather to Himself, and they will enter into their reward. And He means for this temporary meal to satisfy and to sustain us for one more day, for one more week, for one more month. He said that He has not forgotten us. He said that He sees our affliction, that He cares about what we're suffering. He sees that and He knows it. And every time you take from this table, Paul says, you are proclaiming His death until He comes. Because you are sons and daughters of the King, you take this meal as an assurance, as a sign that God will finish the work that He began in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He will raise you up out of your misery, out of your bondage, out of your oppression, and bring you into fullness of joy. Men, will you please come forward now to help distribute the elements? As the men gather the elements and begin to make their way back up the aisle to distribute, let me just remind you that we view the Lord's Supper as something of a covenant meal to be enjoyed by God's people. Men, if you would start with the bread. Start with the bread. Thank you. A covenant meal to be enjoyed by His people who have entered into new life in Christ, following Him obediently in baptism. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you have not been baptized as a sign of your life in Him, we would just simply ask that you let the plate pass by you and that you would think and meditate and reflect on the offer that is made to you of free life in Jesus Christ.
In Exodus 4, God is calling his firstborn son, Israel, out to serve him. And of course, to serve him in this context would mean gladness and joy and reward. Listen, though, how Jesus turns this idea of the son serving his father on its head for our glory and joy. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If Jesus Christ, the true and better firstborn son, were to serve his father well, it meant that he would serve by going to death so that he could make us little firstborn sons and daughters. He serves the Father's will to his pain, but to our comfort. Take and eat. Father, how we thank you that you sent your firstborn son to take the penalty, the punishment, the beating, and the bruising that we deserve for our sin. And thank you that although we were estranged from you and rebels, that by the blood of Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit, we have been adopted into the family of God. Thank you for your son. Amen. Men, if you would come forward to distribute the cups.
in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, Paul gives us this word of assurance on the authority of God's word. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. We have the assurance and the guarantee that because Jesus not only was beaten and bruised, but actually poured out his life completely, because the sacrifice and the payment was made complete, that God will also complete his good work that that sacrifice bought. He will not leave us undone. He will make us, through every twist and turn of life, until one day we finally stand before him, he will make us like his firstborn son. We will be like him when we see him. Take and drink. Father, how we praise you that your sacrifice, that the sacrifice of your son was not partial, but that it was full. And that the work that you have begun, you will complete in us as you completed the sacrifice, the death and the resurrection of your son in his first coming. We look forward to his return when we will be shown and vindicated in the rule and reign of Christ to be sons and daughters of the King. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We're going to close out with that last verse of stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Would you stand as we praise his name? Here we firm foundation hear the refuge of the lost Christ the rock of our salvation is the name of which we boast Lamb of God for sinners wounded sacrifice to cancel shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built Lamb of God for sinners wounded sacrifice to cancel guilt none shall ever be confounded who on him As we close today, we do encourage you to fellowship with one another as we exit. Uh, we will exit with a benediction. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed.